Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. We're up to episode 4.5, The Beginning of Mirth. This season, the titles of the episodes have been following a, a happy theme. Excitement this, pleasure that, bard of mirth, beginning of mirth, a bunch of titles about mirth and happiness. Those titles are there because of one man, a man who would dominate the rest of this series. And in fact, he's already appeared. A couple of times. Most recently last week, we heard about a bard who went off to win the favour of an emperor. And that bard would go on to write the story of that emperor, the story which is the first secular biography we have from ancient India. The man the story was about, the emperor Harsha. Harsha means something like happiness or excitement. Perhaps it's most often translated as mirth. So, what's that you say? My episode titles are nothing but cheap puns? Not at all. It's true that they're puns, but there's nothing cheap about them. And in any case, they're not even my puns. The first people to pun on Emperor Harsha's name lived at the very same time that he lived. In fact, one of his enemies left us an inscription saying how he took, a, he took away the glee from Harsha by defeating him on the battlefield. He took the Harsha from Harsha. People say that modern Indians don't really enjoy puns. It's not part of the modern Indian sense of humour. Not sure if that's true. But at least any ancient Indians listening to this podcast might see the funny side of the episode titles. And there's comfort in that. Anyway, in this episode, we're going to get to know Harsha. Actually, Harsha won't be doing very much. Instead, we're going to get to know him by looking at what happened before he came on the scene. We're going to see where Harsha came from. We're going to look at his family's legendary history, his ancestors right up to his oddball, devout father. In fact, we're going to go all the way up to just before Harsha's birth. Ready? Let's go. We're in the land of Lord Lovely. Lord Lovely himself isn't around at the moment. He's going to be making an appearance later on in the story. He could be a little bit unexpected when he does. But we're talking about the land. And the land of Lord Lovely was lovely itself. It's up against the hills of the Himalayas. And great rivers pour out of the mountains onto the broad plains of northern India, on either side of the land. Over to the western boundary of the land, the waters of the Sutlej crash out of the mountains and through the hills. The Sutlej is one of those famous five rivers of the Punjab. It flows down into the river Indus and then out into the Arabian Sea, to the west of India. To the east of the land, the waters of the Yamuna came rushing through. And then they turned away pretty much eastwards, heading to Allahabad, where the first minor Gupta kings were lying on their beds, hatching their plots to build an empire. Then the waters flowed on past Allahabad, even broader, ever sleepier, until they washed past the great city of Patliputra itself. But Patliputra is more than a thousand kilometres away from the land of Lord Lovely. It's almost irrelevantly far. That's as far away as, as Florida is from New York. Further, in fact. The land of Lord Lovely was just as fertile as you'd expect with all of the great rivers rushing through it. At harvest time, the heaps of corn were as thick as trees on the roadside. Later, when the time came for ploughing the fields, they were already jam-packed with wild lotuses, growing unaided. Up in the hillier parts of the land, people grew rice and they grew beans, and even up there, the land was so fertile that the crops spilled out of the fields and started growing on the banks and even on the road itself. And there were lots of crops. There were lots of types of crops too. Even coconuts usually uh, keeping much further south, coconuts chose to grow in this land's loamy soil. In the land of Lord Lovely, the farming business was good. Actually, though, there were even better businesses in the land of Lord Lovely. Most of the wealth of the land came not from farms, but from the caravans. The land of Lord Lovely was a country of traders. Rich merchants making money, taking goods between the long valley of the Ganga to the broad valley of the Indus and back again. 
about the time the Gupta Empire started to get going. One of the rich trading families in the land managed to get hold of power. The head of the family was called Pushpabuti, and he became king of the land of Lord Lovely, the trader king. By the way, like many traders, Pushpabuti was from the Vaishya caste, the Varna. There's some dispute about this by some modern historians, but that seems to be simply because some modern historians are, are, are stuck with this idea that only Kshatriyas, only people from the warrior kingly Varna, were kings in ancient India. But we have a whole range of different ancient sources, and every single one of them is clear. Pushpabuti and Harsha, his descendant, they were Vaishyas. The very fact that the sources say this without apology or shock or scandal shows it was no big deal in ancient times. In this period, kings were kings, and their caste it didn't really matter that much. The stories do say that the trader king was a deeply devoted man. He worshipped Shiva. In fact, he'd worshipped Shiva since he was a very, very young boy, almost since he'd been born, as if he hadn't needed anyone to tell him who to worship and how to worship. Actually, Pushpabuti could have found plenty of people to tell him who and how to worship if he'd needed it, and that's because... The land of Lord Lovely had long been a heartland of Brahminical orthodoxy. In fact, it was said to be the scene of the great battle from the Mahabharata. It was said to be fought around the air of the capital. It was also said that the holy river Saraswati lapped at the edge of that city. Sacred places. Elsewhere, we are told that the land received special protection from Shiva himself, who surrounded it with a, a wall of impenetrable flame when the world was in peril. So this is a land that's woven in to Brahminical stories going a long way back. Even today, it's the destination of a lot of pilgrims, and it seems to be in the destination of pilgrims back then too. And back in the time that the trader king came to power, it was worship of Shiva in particular that was really taking off in the region. This was part of what some historians think of as a Brahminical revival. For centuries, many centuries in fact, the unorthodox schools had been ruling the roost, Jainism, Buddhism, Ajavikism. But around this time, the Brahminical orthodoxy had started to seriously push back against them. And in fact, in the land of Lord Lovely, there was almost nothing else but Brahminical orthodoxy. There was very little Buddhism or Jainism or Ajavikism. Almost all of the people in the land worshipped Shiva. They would rise early in the morning. They would take eight handfuls of flowers and scatter them. Then they would pour milk on the shivalinga. The most devout amongst them got a stick of gogol wood and twisted it into their forehead, sticking it right down to the bone. And then they set fire to the other end. Now, gogol wood has got this thick, uh, fragrant resin. It's a bit like myrrh. And it would burn down to the skin, leaving a deep scar. That's pretty devoted when you think about it. There's even some talk of, of stone temples to Shiva being built at this time, but actually that seems a bit early to me. Along with this new devotion to Shiva, there were darker forms of worship. And to find them, we should head down to the cemetery at night, and there we might see rituals, men in black rags using corpses, in rather worrying ways. Now, these traditions of worship Shiva have long since disappeared, of course. They've been purged. But they seem to have been unsettlingly common in Pushpabuti in the trader king's time. And the trader king very much enjoyed all of this worship of Shiva. And so it was that when a Shiva ascetic came to the palace door one day, he was quickly welcomed in and brought before the king. The ascetic, he was a strange-looking man, even by the standards of those times. His face was all crinkled and creased, and his gums had receded oddly far, or else his mouth must have grown oddly wide, because his teeth seemed like islands, each a bit of a long hop from the next one. The ascetic wore a simple cloth, tied at his heart. Over his left shoulder he slung a pole, and one hand grasped at one end of it, and the other end of the pole there was tied all of the ascetic's worldly belongings. A dirt scraper a wooden begging bowl, a water jug, sandals, and a loincloth. 
except for the luxury of having a stool which he tucked under his right arm. This man was the student of a, a famous Shaiva ascetic. Where is your teacher? the king asked him. The ascetic student answered bluntly, Oh, um, some lonely place, and immediately got down to business. The student, it seems, wasn't much used to niceties, and I, I suppose if you're spending your life with a famous ascetic, you don't get much chance to practice your courtly manners. The student promptly reached into his sack and drew out something shiny, something silver, a lotus embedded with fine jewels. He placed it carefully on the ground in front of the king. And the thing was so brilliantly constructed, so finely polished, that it made the room shine as if a window had been opened out onto the moon. The ascetic student reached into his sack again and pulled out another silver lotus, another window on the moon shining just as clearly as the first, and he laid it on the ground carefully in front of the king. Then he reached into his sack and drew out another and laid it down, and another and another, until five silver lotuses shone their cool white light over the king's face. These are from my master for you, said the student. And the king accepted them, as he would. And he promised that he would go and visit the ascetic tomorrow, probably to say thank you. Then the student grabbed his stick with all his belongings, swung on his shoulder, turned on his heel, and headed back into the forest. The next day, the king found a horse and got one of the two of his courtiers to come with him, and he set out for the ascetic's retreat. He had all of the grandeur befitting a king with him, a white umbrella carried above his head, rain or shine, white flywisks being swished behind him. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't an overly grand outing, just a, a king and a, a few mates and his flywisks and umbrellas and what have you. A humble man making a humble trip to see his spiritual better. They came across the ascetic in an old temple to Mother Earth, and as the king approached, he would have seen the first hints of what sort of man this famous ascetic was. Even before he saw the man himself, he would have seen on the floor a complex design marked out in ashes. And beyond that, at the centre of that design, the skin of a tiger. And then finally, sitting on the very centre of the tiger skin, the famous ascetic himself. And what a sight he must have been. If the student was an odd-looking thing, the master was downright peculiar. He was wrapped in black wool, but beneath the black wool, this loincloth of pure white shone out. That must have been a, a washing nightmare. On his feet, he wore sandals also of pure white, and his face, his face was even more odd. I mean, his hair was greying at the temples as it, as it does of men about his age. But also he had hair growing out of his ears, so much that his ears were almost encased in them. I suppose ascetics don't trim ear hair. At the top, his hair was tied up and bound with, with small conch shells and beads. And his eyes, his eyes were yellow, like a man going blind. And there, on his sloping forehead, beneath the, the lines drawn in ash, you could make out the deep scar from the Google stick, the stick he placed there every day, the stick he screwed into his skull, lighting it, allowing its sticky sap to burn down to his skin, dripping down his arched forehead and off his eyebrows. In the ascetic's hands was a staff, not a harmless stick for leaning on, but almost a weapon, a brutal-looking thing, barbed at one end with a, a skewer of iron. Now, if you or me saw someone like that today, we would think that they were a cult. I think they're trying to look magical. And I rather think that this was something like the effect it had on the king. Something out of his normal world. Maybe good, but unknown. Dangerous. The ascetic invited the king to sit with him up on the lion skin. That was the normal, proper thing to do. That was what happened when kings met ascetics. But the king, in a sort of excess of modesty, refused. Instead, he sat in the place where students sit and listened eagerly. This, the ascetic liked. He liked it a lot, and they settled down to talking to one another. And after a while, a friendship of short sorts was struck up between the two. And it continued past that day. 
From time to time, the ascetic would send his servant with five more silver lotuses to light up the palace. And in return, the king offered the ascetic his harem, his palace, his land, even his own self. Of course, the ascetic rejected all of those fine gifts. I mean, what could an ascetic possibly want with a palace? But the gifts and friendly messages and gestures kept on flowing between the two. One day, the ascetic sent a new gift. This time, not five silver lotuses. This time, the ascetic servant entered the palace with a, a long pile of rags. He pulled the rags off, and beneath there was a sword. A curved sword, vicious looking, like the smile of hate. It was notched in places, had this blue sheen on it. As the bard puts it, it was the ornament of arrogance, the family friend of wrath, the body of pride, the comrade of valour, the child of death. It was the path of approaching glory and the road of departing fame. Pretty nice gift. Maybe even better than those fine silver lotuses, especially when you've got like 45 of the silvery things. The trader king accepted the sword. He was almost too keen to get his hands on it, but the trader king always minded his manners. He was sure to thank the ascetic servant properly. The next day, a message arrived from the king. It was a secret message, meant only for the king, and the king read it in private. It was a message from his friend, the famous ascetic. The ascetic said that he had been performing a great ritual. Every day, the ascetic had been going down to the cemetery and repeating a mantra. In fact, he'd had to repeat it ten million times. And the ascetic wrote to the king that the ritual was almost complete. That the ten million mantra repetitions, that had been done. There's just one more thing to do. And this wasn't something the ascetic could do himself. He'd need the king's help. So, would the king come alone? on the 14th day of the dark moon. He wouldn't have to do it all alone. I mean, he'd be met by three friends that the ascetic would send to help him, and the four of them would go off together to go to the cemetery and complete the ritual. So, my old friend, the king, will you do it? Will you come to the cemetery and help? Oh, and if you're coming, make sure to bring the sword, you know, that, that nice blue, shiny smile of death. It's going to be needed. The king, of course, came. He waited until the 14th day of the dark moon came. And then he armed himself, sword ready at one hand, the famous sword, the smile of death, and a dagger at the other. He sat there until night was deepest and the capital city was quite still. He snuck out of the palace alone. And there, beyond the walls, the shadows of the trees looked almost like monsters, the bard says. But the trader king wasn't perturbed. He didn't flinch for a moment. He pushed onwards in the direction of the cemetery. Near the cemetery, he came across three men. Must be the friend sent by the monk. Like him, they were armed. They were armed with swords and broad shields, and on the shields were marked crescents and golden circles. In their golden belts, they had daggers tucked. But everything else about them was black. Black clothes black turbans on their head, black bracelets on their arms. Even their skin was smeared with paint black. They solemnly introduced themselves. They were a monk, a pramana, and a southern Indian ascetic. The niceties of meeting next to a dark cemetery dressed in black completed, the four turned and had entered the cemetery. And there they saw the ascetic making offerings throwing them into the burning mouth of a corpse. The ascetic was, if anything, even blacker than his companions, head to toe, darkness. And the corpse, the corpse wasn't black. The corpse was a picture of red. A smear. Red sandals on the corpse's feet, red clothes round around its body, red flowers ringing his silent throat. The ascetic's mouth was moving, up and down, reciting something but no sound came out. As the king and his companions approached, the ascetic kept on. He didn't even glance up. What to do? The king and his companions settled down in the graveyard, in the cemetery. Hands probably not straying too far from their weapons. 
A bit before midnight, these moans started to come from the darkness. Monsters roused by the ascetic's ritual. The king and his companions gripped the hilts of their swords, but the monsters never made it to the light. They never attacked. All bark, no bite. Finally, they quietened down. The warm-up act was over. And then it came. To the north, a wrenching sound, the ground tearing open, splitting in two, and a chasm opening out, going down, deep down. And from the chasm there rose up an iron pillar, and with the pillar a huge, monumental figure. The figure, like the ascetic who had summoned him, was blackness in night. You could make out his shape, but only because he was splattered here and there with sandal paste, and because flowers hung around his neck. And they were shaking. The great, huge figure was shaking, slapping his thick thighs. He, he was laughing. (laughs) You want success, but you haven't paid your due to me. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know the name of this land? I am the Nugger, the Serpent. I am Lord Lovely. The king's three companions didn't stop to get further introductions or to ask why he got the name Lord Lovely. They came at him with their swords and their shields. Lord Lovely had no sword. He had no shield. He had no weapon at all. He didn't need them. One by one, the companions' weapons were bent in his bare hands, and the companions found themselves smashed down by Lord Lovely's stony fists. They fought well, but finally they were spent, lying in broken tangles on the ground. Lord Lovely turned to the king. And you? You're supposed to be king? don't look much like it, do you? Here you are, asking for help from these tatty little housecasts, these wannabes. The king wasn't very impressed by this. Valor is not in words, it's in actions, he said. The trader king, it seems, was pretty good with trash talking. He drew his dagger and his sword. He told Lord Lovely to arm himself. The king would not fight an unarmed man, not even an unarmed monster. But Lord Lovely would not. He just stood there, clenching his fists, hurling insults at the king. So the king threw aside his dagger, threw aside the great blue weapon, the smile of hate. The king had had enough. He ran straight at the monster, clenched fist raised, longing to strike. The battle between the two was brutal and long. It didn't involve any blades, but it might as well have. The two swung their mighty fists, smacking into each other's bodies until blood sprayed out as each blow landed. Finally, At the end of it, the king had the best of Lord Lovely. Lord Lovely was on the ground, his energy spent. The king was holding him down. He reached over for his sword which he had dropped nearby. He got his hand around the handle, lifted it, pulled his arm back, ready to slice off Lord Lovely's head. And just as the sword was beginning its descent downwards to the throat of Lord Lovely, the king saw it. There, on Lord Lovely's shoulder, the sacred thread. Lord Lovely was a Brahmin. He must not be killed. The king dropped the sword. Suddenly, the dark of the cemetery was thrown back. A great light had been turned on. It came from the king's own sword, the one the ascetic had gifted him. Inside the sword appeared a woman. A goddess, in fact. She wore anklets up to her knees. Her arms were thick with tight bracelets. In one ear, she had a crescent leaf of ivory. In another ear, ear, she had a shoker leaves. On her forehead, she wore a round disc. And the flowers hanging from her neck trailed all the way to the ground. It was Lakshmi, goddess of fortune. And she was very impressed by the king's character. She told him so. And she offered him anything that he asked for. The king... Being the humble, only get two people to carry your fly swats and umbrella sort of man he was, said, I don't want anything for me, but please just make sure that my ascetic friend gets whatever he wanted from that ritual. Lakshmi granted it. The ascetic immediately went off to heaven. 
Lakshmi was now even more impressed with the king for his selflessness and promised him that he would be the founder of a dynasty, the ancestor of a great emperor. And then she vanished. By this time, the sun was creeping over the horizon. Dawn was almost upon them. The king returned to the palace. The ascetic students, his companions, who had fought with him, they were now without a master. The master had gone off to heaven. So two of them, the Brahmana and the southern Indian ascetic, gave up their old way of life and joined the king's army. The other, the monk, drifted off into the forest, was not heard from again. It's an interesting legend, isn't it? It's a bit unlike most of the legends we've heard before. There's this faint ring of death metal. Partly that's my spin on it, but not entirely, I think. One of the forms of Shaivism that was around at this time had this obsession with the colour black, an obsession with cremation grounds and peculiar rituals involving the mutilation of corpses. And this wasn't black magic in the Western sense. After all, think about the goal of the famous ascetic. He was involved in all this stuff to get to heaven, not to get any sort of earthly power. And don't expect people to be flying around on broomsticks or anything like that in ancient India. But there's some genuine reveling in the, in the arcane, in the hidden, in the monstrous. The trader king, Pushpabuti, may well have existed. Not all of the stories about him involve something so hard to believe as the one we've just heard. Other tales tell of the trader king forging out a kingdom for himself, throwing his weight around northern India. And that's quite plausible. If the trader king lived at all, he lived in an age where every little kingdom seemed to be trying to become an empire, and more than half of them had a good chance of succeeding. Eventually, it would be the Gupta kingdom that succeeded and became a great empire, but Pushpabuti wasn't to know that. And Pushpabuti, the trader king, is said to have taken his army, doubtless with two black-clad heroes in tow, as far afield as Matura. That's more than a, a week's march to the south. But by the time of our emperor, Harsha, by the time of this season of the podcast, the trader king, the king who had founded the family dynasty, the king who had slain Lord Lovely. That was just a legend. The man was as surrounded, wrapped in myth as a King Arthur is for us today, or Akbar and Birbal are for us today. By the way, if you think both Akbar and Birbal existed, I'm afraid you're in for a surprise. Harsha himself makes no mention at all of his legendary ancestor, in any of his inscriptions. Maybe the ancestor didn't exist at all. Maybe this was just another wild tale, tale of a, a founder of a dynasty, cooked up by a new ruling family who were in need of a more prestigious, glorious, ancient past. It wouldn't have been the first time. At any rate, after the time of Pushpabuti, the family fell out of the gaze of history. During this period, the great Gupta emperors conquered the territory. They conquered the, the land of Lord Lovely. And it seems that they actually ruled the land directly. The ancestors of Harsha, they would have been, at best, minor feudatory kings, servants of the emperor, administrators. At worst, they would have been nothing more than another once great family, reduced to taking caravans across the country like the rest of the families in the area. But by the time the Gupta Empire is getting a bit old, Harsha's family comes back under the gaze of history. And history tells us the family was doing okay. Not exactly well, but okay. This was not a glorious family, obviously destined to produce a great emperor, but they were also becoming slowly significant. During this period towards the, the back end of the Gupta Empire, Harsha's ancestors were Maharajas. Now, Maharaja sounds pretty grand to us, but around this time, it wasn't so much grand. It, it meant that you were definitely not the boss if you were called Maharaja. Instead, Maharajas were 
henchmen kings. They were kings who answered to a much more important king with a much more impressive title somewhere else. They were, in fact, glorified caretakers. So, who were Harsh's ancestors caretakers for? Who were the more important kings somewhere else with more important titles? Historians can't decide, and I've heard pretty much every possibility mentioned. I think that most likely, Harsh's ancestors served the Malkaris. We've heard about the Malkaris in previous episodes. The Malkaris were at this time probably the most powerful kingdom in the area. They were going to beat the later Guptas, and they might even have ruled Puddleyputra itself. And sure enough, we find the Malkaris treating the ancestors of Harsha as mere underlings. So at one point, the Malkaris get their army, and they want to beat the Huns, but the Huns are the other side of Harsha's ancestors' territory. That's no problem for the Malkaris, they just march straight through the territory and go and fight the Huns. Another occasion, we seem to find the Malkaris commanding Harsh's ancestors to fight uh, as far away as Assam, the banks of the Red River. Harsh's ancestors were most definitely not in charge of their own affairs. But they weren't doing too badly. Like I said, Harsh's family was very much on the way up. For example, The later Guptas, the inheritors of the Gupta Empire in some ways, when they got into trouble, when they needed an ally, they turned to Harsh's ancestors. A later Gupta king married his sister to Harsh's grandfather. Now that alliance didn't really do the later Guptas any good, the later Guptas were still taken down, but at least it shows that Harsh's family were seen to be worth making an alliance with. And that probably couldn't have been said only a couple of generations before. And so it was that when Harsha's father was born, he had the blood of two great families running through his veins. From his father, the blood of the Vardanas, the blood of the trader king Pushpabuti. From his mother, the blood of the later Guptas, the inheritors of the Gupta Empire. Two great families come together in one person. And the two families would be entangled. They would come to decide one another's fate. Harsh's father inherited a kingdom that was probably reasonably small. In fact, it seems to have been roughly the same area as the legendary forefather who ruled, the land of Lord Lovely, between the two river systems up against the hills. And the land seems to have been pretty much the same as it had been in legendary times. All the sources tell us that the people in the land were still very much devoted to Shiva. And in fact, In the time since uh, the legendary ancestor, much of northern India had become overwhelmingly Shaivite. The Gupta emperors had been, at least nominally, devotees of Vishnu, although some of the later ones seem to have been committed Buddhists. But now, after the Guptas, pretty much all of the rulers worshipped Shiva. There are one or two eccentric exceptions, but by and large, the people who defeated the Guptas and the people who wanted to take their place, worshipped Shiva. And the evidence seems to show that the people they ruled largely went the same way. The land of Lord Lovely was still as lovely as ever. The muffled sound of cowbells echoed from the trees of the jungle. Camels huddled in corners, chewing the cud, eyelashes flattering in the wind. On the air was the smell of herbs. If you went on, you might find arches of a vine marking the entrance of a village. And if you went through the village, the bees would be droning lazily through the pomegranates. Harsh's father seemed to have sensed that family fortunes were on the rise. He started to explore his borders, have a look at the neighbouring lands. And by have a look, I mean... Go there with a sword in your hand, a huge army at your back. He took his army all the way down to Malwa, the crucible of late ancient Indian warfare, the place where all of the big battles were being fought. Actually, it was a place that would have been of personal significance to Harsha's father, because it was the ancestral home of his mother's family of the later Guptas. In any case, he fought down there, whoever he found, It seems that he fought at least two separate dynasties. One of them might have even been 
distant relatives, but the sources are surprisingly coy about who he fought and who won. In fact, Marwa was still a crucible of warfare. The great city of Marwa Ujjain had been changing hands almost every few years. It had been going like that for quite a while. Being a citizen in Ujjain must have been pretty horrible. Each of the great kingdoms of northern India seemed to have had their turn in charge of Ujjain before the next came along and threw them out. Well, Harsha, Harsha's father, added his name to the list. Actually, though, Harsha's father's hardest battles were fought to the north. Centuries before, the Huns had swept across northern India, through Malwa, falling the Ganga down as far as Patliputra itself. The Huns attacked the Gupta Empire again and again, and they were thrown back again and again. Each time, the cost was higher to the Gupta Empire, until, in one final clash, both the Huns and the Gupta Empire were exhausted. The Gupta Empire retreated to the east, the Huns retreated to the northwest. In fact, what happened is that the Hun ruler had been captured, but the Gupta Emperor, Emperor had, had let him go free, and the Hun ruler had, had fled to northwest India. He'd taken refuge in a kingdom. And slowly, bit by bit, the former Hun ruler had taken control of the kingdom who had given him refuge by trickery, bloody determination. He'd carved out a space for himself. He'd taken over the kingdom and then taken over nearby kingdoms too. He conquered the ancient university province of Gandhara. He built his base in Kashmir, up in the mountains. So, for people downstream on the broad Gangetic plain, the Huns were pretty much spent and gone. But for people living in northwest India, the Huns were still very much a part of life. The Hun tribes up in Kashmir and in Ganhara kept on raiding, kept on crossing the border into neighbouring kingdoms, raiding villages, draining economies. So Harsha's father set out to fight them. Took the army up north, into the shadows of the tall peaks of the Himalayas, hunting down the Huns. And the battle, well... We don't have the details as usual, but it must have been pretty fierce. And it must have been that Harsha's father was personally involved in the thick of the fighting. Because after the war, his body was covered in long white bandages. And beneath those, dozens of scars. Reminders of the war with the Huns. But it seems that Harsha's father won. The Huns were sent running. Harsha's father was, as the bard puts it, the lion to the Hun deer. And by the way, whilst we're talking about the Huns for almost the last time, this seems to be pretty much par for the course. I know we've got this, this picture of invincible Hun warriors cutting a, a sway through any territory they wanted and basically doing what they pleased. Actually, it seems that quite a few ancient Indians had that idea too. But pretty much any time a sizable army came against the Huns, the Huns got beaten. The Huns were overwhelmed. The Huns in India, by this time, they weren't so terrible because they were so powerful, because they were so good at military combat. The Huns were terrible because they were so tenacious, because they just kept on coming back. It didn't matter how many times you'd beaten them, they still were never quite finished. And, in fact, even after Harsha's father's victory, the Huns were still not quite finished. Not yet. And there's another adjustment we should make in our idea of the Huns. The Huns, in our picture, are foreigners, at least foreigners to India. They're funny, we can't really relate to them if we're an ancient Indian. Now, that's not really true anymore. The Huns really aren't very foreign in India. And partly, that's because ideas from Central Asia and from Iran, where the Huns had passed through, had been absorbed into to northern India, especially northwest India. At this time, if a, a farmer wanted to draw water, well, they might use a well, but they might use a Persian wheel. And they'd call it a Persian wheel, because it was technology imported from Persia. And then there were items of clothing from Central Asia. For example, these small bodices, they became uh, quite popular in the Gupta era. 
those came with the Hunnic invaders, or maybe with some of the other invaders from Central Asia. And we haven't even talked about the, the pointed turbans that look oddly like Central Asian hats. More than that, though, Persian religion had greatly influenced the ideas of Northwest India. But actually, there's a more central reason why the Huns weren't so foreign in India anymore. And that wasn't because of the ideas that ancient Indians had accepted, it was because of the ideas the Huns had accepted. Let's think about religion again. The great bad Hun king, the one who had fought the Guptas and been captured and then spared by the Gupta emperor and, and then gone and escaped and formed his own kingdom, he, he was a devotee of Shiva. In fact, he was a devotee of Shiva in the aspect, under the name, worshipped specifically at the capital of the land of Lord Lovely. So it's possible, maybe it's even likely, that the great wild king of the Huns, the man who bowed to no one, as it says in the inscription, bowed at Harsha's capital, that centre of prominical orthodoxy, bowed down to Shiva, just as most of Harsha's people would have. And since that time, the Huns had two or three more additional generations to absorb Indian thought and culture. So the Huns, these were not invaders fresh off the steppe. Not some wild, inexplicable, insane torrent of man and horse. No, these were people who followed the same religion as other ancient Indians. People you could understand, people you could talk to, maybe even people you could worship with. And, well, you know, if you had to face them in battle every generation or so just to keep them in their place, well, you could say the same for many other kingdoms in ancient India. And Harsha's father threw his military weight not just against the Huns, not just against the ancestral lands to the south, but against pretty much all of his neighbours. It's not clear from the text whether it always came to battle, but at least Harsha's father carved out some respect for himself. So he threw his weight against the new rules of Gandhara. No longer the Huns, but a, a dynasty we'll probably touch on in some special episode. He fought the, the Gujars, the people who gave their name to the modern Indian state of Gujarat. At this time, they're probably in Rajasthan, and completely different place. He also fought in Sindhu, to the immediate south of his kingdom. Now, these fights were not conquering fights. Harsha's father didn't carve out an empire with all of this sword rattling. In fact, little or no territory was added to his kingdom. The family wasn't quite ready for that yet. Harsha's father was a great warrior then, but he wasn't just a warrior. In fact, he wasn't even mostly a warrior. Most of all, Harsha's father was a devoted man. Devoted to his god and devoted to his lover. His god, his god was the sun. His father had worshipped the sun, and so had his grandfather. In fact, that's why Harsha's father got his name, Prabhakara, the sun. Every morning, he woke at dawn. He stepped into a circle painted with golden saffron paste. He faced towards the rising sun. He offered up a bunch of red roses in a vase of ruby red, mimicking the sunrise. And then he bowed down, chanting a hymn to the sun. He went through the ritual again when the sun reached its highest point, celestial noon. And then he did it again when the sun came down. Now this form of worship was a little bit foreign, at least in his own lands, where the vast majority of people followed Brahminical orthodoxy, focused on worshipping Shiva. And in fact, this, this worship of the sun was a touch foreign to India. It became popular when the nomads came out of Central Asia and ruled large tracts of India. Back then, there was a freer flow of goods and ideas with Iran. And Iranian ideas about sun worship were picked up and were mixed and smeared together with Indian worship of the sun, and they were followed devoutly. And Harsha's forefathers were descendants of that old tradition. Harsha's father was more devout than most, perhaps. He conspired with court astrologers regularly, and he prayed every day. And what he was praying for was a child. And not just any child, it had to be a child from his chief queen. Harsha's father had many queens like most kings of the time, 
but he seems to have only cared about children from his chief queen. Her name was Yashavati. Now, the curious thing about Harsha's father's devotion to this woman is that there doesn't seem to be anything political about it. There's no indication that the chief queen was in any way connected to any important power. Her family name is pretty much unknown. When her brother appears, he's not given any title, he's not king of anywhere, he's not prince of anything, he's just the brother of the queen. So this might have been a love marriage or a marriage uh, where love grew after the actual connection, but it doesn't seem to have been a political marriage. Harsh's father seems to have been devoted to his lover. One night, the chief queen had a dream. The sun was there, and out from it came two boys and a girl, and they entered her womb. It's not the sort of dream you need a very clever interpreter for. The signs were obvious. And a short while later, the chief queen became pregnant. She would give birth to a son, and that son would become king of the land. But that son... He was not the great Emperor Harsha. And that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. Now we know quite a lot about Emperor Harsha, mostly because we have his biography written by his own bard, probably in his own lifetime. But we've got other sources too. Sources that are almost equally detailed. That's because during Harsha's reign, a Chinese monk came through. The Chinese monk was Shang Zheng. And in fact, we've quoted from him quite a lot in the past, stretching back over two whole seasons. And that's because his reports are very detailed. He's writing a report for the Chinese emperor and has the eyes of a a quartermaster, a, a map maker, an accountant. Anyway, I thought we would read his description of Harsha's kingdom. It's curious because it got this odd outsider's understanding of the legends of the area. You can almost hear the Mahabharata in there, but there's also other legends mixed in. Anyway, it goes like this. This kingdom is about 7,000 li in circuit and the capital is about 20 li or so. The soil is rich and productive and abounds with grain. The climate is genial, though hot. The manners of the people are cold and insincere. Nice. The families are rich and given to excessive luxury. They are much addicted to the use of magical arts and greatly honour those of distinguished ability in other ways. Most of the people follow after worldly gain. Few give themselves to agricultural pursuits. There is a large accumulation here of rare and valuable merchandise from every quarter. There are three Buddhist monasteries in this country with about 700 pieces, but they all study the little vehicle. There are also some hundred Deva temples, that's temples of Brahminical orthodoxy, and sects of various kinds in great number. On every side of the capital, Within a precinct of 200 li in circuit is an area called by the men of this place the land of religious merit. This is what the tradition states about it. In old time, there were two kings of the five Indies, between whom the government of India was divided. They attacked one another's frontiers and never ceased fighting. At length, the two kings came to an agreement that they should select on each side a certain number of soldiers to decide the question by combat, and so to give the people of India a rest. But the multitude rejected this plan. They would have none of it. Then the king, that's the king of uh, the land of Lord Lovely, the king reflected that the people are difficult to please. Maybe a miraculous power uh, may move them. Some project may perhaps settle them to some right course of action. At this time, there was a Brahmin of great wisdom and high talent. And to him, the king secretly sent a present of some rolls of silk and requested him to retire within his private apartment and there to compose a religious book which he might conceal in a mountain cavern. After some time, when trees had grown over the mouth of the cavern, the king summoned his ministers before him. 
and he sat on his royal throne and said, Ashamed of my little virtue in the high estate I occupy, the ruler of heaven has been pleased to reveal him to me in a dream, and to confer upon me a divine book, which is now concealed in such and such a mountain and in such and such a rocky corner. On this, an edict was issued to search for the book, and it was found underneath the mountain bushes. The high ministers addressed their congratulations to the king, and the people were overjoyed. The king then gave an account of the discovery to those far and near, and caused all to understand this, that this is the upshot of his message. To birth and death there is no limit, no end to the revolutions of life. There is no rescue from the spiritual abyss. But now by a rare plan, I am able to deliver men from this suffering, because around this royal city, for the space of 200 lean circuit, is a land of religious merit, apportioned by kings of old. Years having rolled away in great numbers, the traces having been forgotten or destroyed. Men not regarding religion have been immersed in the sea of sorrow without power of escape. What's then to be said? Let it be known, from this divine revelation that was given to me, that all those of you who shall attack the enemy's troops in dire battle, they shall be born again as men. If they kill many, that, free from guilt, they shall receive heavenly joys. Those obedient grandchildren and pious children who assist their aged parents in walking about this land shall reap happiness without bounds. With little work, a great reward. Who would lose such an opportunity since, when once dead, our bodies fall into the dark intricacies of the three evil ways? Therefore, let every man stir himself to the utmost to repair good works. On this, the men hastened to the conflict and regarded death as deliverance. The king accordingly issued the edict and summoned his braves. The two countries engaged in conflict, and the dead bodies were heaped together as sticks, and from that time till now, the plains there are everywhere covered with their bones. As this relates to a very remote period of time, the bones are very large ones. I don't, I don't understand that. The constant tradition of this country, therefore, has called this the field of religious merit. And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link in the description. Next week, Harsh is going to burst onto the scene. Until then, have a great week and take care.